Ah, you obviously know Kung Fu. This is Dave Kalstein, co-executive producer and writer of the upcoming USA Network series Treadstone, set in the world of Jason Bourne. And I'm joined by... My name is Patrick Fugit. I'm an actor. I play a character that I cannot discuss fully in Treadstone. He could tell you, but then he'd have to kill you. <laughs> this is the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. <laughs> awesome. Welcome to the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Adjust your speaker box, sit back, relax, and remember, your Kung Fu may be good, but mine is better. <laughs> Joining me tonight, writer, executive producer of shows like Quantico and NCIS Los Angeles, as well as co-executive producer of the upcoming Jason Bourne spinoff Treadstone, a lifelong martial artist, Dave Kalstein, joined by actor in such projects as Almost Famous, Gone Girl, Outcast, also featuring in Treadstone, sometime musician, also a lifelong martial artist, Patrick Fugit. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the Kung Fu Drive-In podcast tonight. Hell yeah. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you. So to start things off, Patrick, congratulations on the uh, upcoming birth of your new baby. <laughs> Thanks, man. I have three daughters, so I know what you're about to go through, but uh, congratulations. It's going to be a hell of an adventure. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. We can't wait. <laughs> All right. Also, uh, thanks to our mutual friend, Raphael Cannon, who uh, helped us get in touch. Uh, he mentioned that you both are students of the Sayakali system. And uh, I know a little bit about it, but uh, Dave, you sound like you're really passionate about the system uh, because you talk about it a little bit on your IMDb profile. So can you give me a, a little bit of background on what the Sayak system is? Uh, sure. Um, it's a lot different than other martial arts I've trained in that uh, the first thing they tell you is that it's a family-based system. Um, because it was derived from the Sayak family and uh, their lineage in the Philippines. And what that means and what it meant to me is I arrived in the first class as a pretty capable guy physically. And I felt like I could handle myself one-on-one -on -one or even one-on-two or three against most people. But then, uh, you know, the line of questioning became, what would I do in that same scenario? But if I'm with my loved ones, whether it's my wife, my mother, children, I didn't have those same answers because they don't train martial arts and Sayak, they excel in uh, the system excels in posing real life, very difficult questions to answer. And on a philosophical basis, uh, the thing that they impart from the very beginning is that we are a tribe. Uh, we've thought about that concept. We teach people to be part of a tribe and we help you strengthen your own tribe. And just, you know, a lot of different martial arts talk about that whether it's like an MMA gym or any other gym, but outside the gym, it doesn't really stick. And so what Sayak really did for me was introduce me to a group of people who were like-minded and who believe that training doesn't end when you leave the training space. And one of the reasons why I'm here with Patrick today is because we got to know each other through Sayak class. I remember his first class and, you know, the training is, is so powerful to us in that, you know, the, the motion of it, the, the art of the blade, the high art of the blade uh, is really just a gateway to connecting with people in a more deep and profound way. Um, because once you've gone through the physical training that Sayak uh, puts forth, you have bonds that are, are very close, even outside of the training space, because the training really never ends. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been training? Uh, my first class was in uh, November of 2011. So 
uh, I guess, uh, about eight years at this point. Okay. And Patrick, how about you? When did you start? Um, I've been training martial arts for a long time, and I've been interested in Sayak for a long time. But the uh, the first opportunity I had to train it here on the West Coast, that I was aware of at least, was in 2014. I think it was July 2014. What's a typical training session like for, for that whole system? Because from what I know, you focus on uh, knife fighting, right? Uh, that's, I would say that the blade is kind of the first thing you do learn, okay. uh, which I thought was really cool because – you know, in most other martial arts systems, you learn how to punch and kick and the blade or the sword or the spear is a thing on the wall that you don't get to touch for another 10 years. <laughs> right. uh, whereas in Sayak, it's the first thing they give you. And um, because the consequences of a blade are so profound and so life-changing that there's a higher level of mental, psychological interaction going on with the training because the stakes are so high. Even with our training blades, that we use, I think everybody that trains remembers what it feels like the first time the cold steel of a training blade touches your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's a sense of, of mindfulness and attention from the very beginning. So the blade is the entry level lesson for our system and it's kind of the, the tool of learning. But you know, it is you know, a, a martial art that comes from the Philippines. And so we train stick, we train empty hand, we train with tribal weapons like spears, the Chris barongs, uh, we use projectiles. Um, and because what Sayak does in such a, such a profound way is they take tribal methods of, of combat and they seamlessly update it for the modern world. So we look at a pistol or a rifle and approach it the same way we would approach a blade because all a pistol or rifle does is basically projectile blades at a very fast velocity over greater distances than we do when we throw the blades. And so I think there's a relevance to it uh, that's profound. And also the way it honors the legacy of all the, the the tribes that came before us. And really certain universal things are always correct across all cultures. And Sayak does a really good job of following the formulas into that, those universals. And Patrick, I mean, we train together. Like what, how do we open a class? Uh, well, the, the start of class is, uh, is our salutation. And um, it's pretty, if, if you've studied FMA, Filipino martial arts, or if anybody has trained any art, really the beginning of class is like a sign in. You know, you're acknowledging your training partners, you're acknowledging your teacher. And a huge part of it for us in Sayoc is acknowledging uh, the source, the source of the art, which is Pamanatuan Chris Sayoc. Who, uh, who's, who's, you know, been the leader of the system for a long time, who's passed away now, but he's the one who's passed all this on to us. And uh, he's part of what we would refer to as the 10,000 hands, mm-hmm. which is like the history of the art, the history of, you know, the tribal art from the Philippines, whether that's the Sayoc family lineage or whether it's, you know, the Atienza lineage, which is a, a very close sister system to Sayoc. Um, and that goes all the way back to everybody who's put in reps, everybody who's bled for the art and the knowledge that we're able to share in that classroom, you know, today. So, uh, it's honoring that legacy. It's also honoring the promise of taking that that knowledge and passing it to the future tribe and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, just to paint a picture for you, uh, we trained in the private warehouse in uh, the Los Angeles area and meaning there's no mirrors, you know, there's no... There's no kickboxing classes being taught. 
the training group leaders, Tuhan Brian Calastro. Uh, he's one of a small number of you know master level instructors in Sayak Kali in the world. We're very lucky to have him in Los Angeles. Yes. And you know, it's it's uh, we you know it's maybe a hundred plus degrees in there. The warehouse is filled with men and women, different experience levels, different sizes and shapes, and you know it's it's physical training. It's very physical, uh, and it, it you know it's not easy. And we're not the kind of training group that markets. Uh, we don't try to sell it to anyone. Really, it's when you come, it's up to you whether you want to train and select yourself into our group or not. Having said that, we welcome all people. But you know, it is like any other family or tribe. Uh, you know, you have to belong and you have to uh, be like-minded. So I uh, am interested in Sayoc as a as an art, uh, just because I'm I'm Filipino, so I have um, I I want to explore all that. I just took up martial arts about two years ago, and I'm f- going to be 48 soon, so I, I got to it a little bit late. But <laughs> one of the things that I'm going to be learning soon, uh, hopefully, is eskrima. So I'm uh, getting in touch with some of the things that is important to that Filipino culture. Patrick, what was it about the system that attracted you? to it and has kept you in it so far? Well, I had first heard of Sayoc uh, from the movie The Hunted. Uh, when I saw The Hunted, mm-hmm. I was into uh, that kind of movie since I was a kid. And uh, the motion in that film was very counterintuitive. It looked beautiful, like it flowed and moved beautifully, but it was also brutal in its application. And it was versatile. So it, it was... You know, obviously it's a movie, so it's riding the line between, you know, authentic reality and and storytelling. But in terms of action or choreography that I had seen in my life before, it it just felt so different. It felt so unique and real. And uh, as soon as that came out, I started researching, like, who who is it that brought the motion to that film? And I found out it was Tuan Raff and uh, Tuan Tom Tyre of Saya Kali. And, um, and so then I immediately got in, I was like, how can I train Saya Kali? And, uh, <laughs> I lived in Salt Lake city, Utah at that point where I grew up and there was just not a training group in Salt Lake city yet. And, uh, and then when I was out here on the West coast, it was before two on Brian Colastro was out here. I, I was looking for it and it was still pretty much an East coast thing. And so, I mean, after after that, you know, I saw the Born Identity, and that has some similar motion. It's a, you know, a lot of Filipino martial arts in that, and uh, and there's there's some of it that looks similar. But I, you know, I was really after that, you know, at the time what I was like that blade stuff. I was like, I want some more of that blade stuff, uh, which led me down the path of you know training with uh, Guru Dan in Osanto and training out of that gym for a long time, and then eventually linking up with Sayak. That's cool. How about you, Dave? What brought you to the system in the first place? Um, well, I, I was uh, at the time I heard about it. I was really into Muay Thai. I, you know, ten plus years in that art, and uh, you know, I realized that I wanted to escalate my skills. I realized I could kick people in the head hard, but a fifteen-year-old with a penknife could, could probably kill me. So I was having. A- <laughs> Um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, is a Navy SEAL. Uh, His name is Dave Olson. And uh, he said, you know, if you're looking to do something that's real and serious, uh, I got to tell you about this thing called SIOC. And I was like, what is it? And he said that he had gone back to a funeral for a fallen brother of his in the SEAL team. And 
funeral, he saw someone he was in buds with. Buds is the Navy SEAL's famous Hell Week training. And he saw a guy that he hadn't seen in 10 years because this guy, he had made it on to SEAL Team 6, basically, a top-tier unit. And the guys kind of disappeared from the regular ranks of the SEALs after that. So he saw this guy and he said he went through a physical transformation. He was like 40 pounds heavier. He looked like a warrior in a way that he didn't before. And there were rumors about this guy that he knew how to use blades and head axes, like Filipino head axes. And uh, blew my friend Dave away. And he said, what changed this guy? And someone, one of the guys on the team said, that guy found Sayak Kali. So my buddy Dave, the SEAL, had never gotten a chance to train it, but he'd seen kind of the elite of the elite and the effects it had. So he told me about it. So the first thing I did was I you know, went home and went on the website, sockkali.com or sock.com, and I emailed uh, the, you know, the customer service address or whatever. And I was shocked because you know, I said in the email, like, I would love to train Sayak. I live in Los Angeles. Um, who can I talk to about signing up for lessons? And the response I got was, uh, who are you? Who told you about us? And why do you want to train? <laughs> and, you know, in, in L.A., that's like usually not what the response you get when you want to sign up for martial arts lessons. You know? And so I, I said, you know, I heard about it from this Navy SEAL and I'm this guy. And, you know, you can Google me and this and that. And I had to go through like six, seven emails until I finally got in touch, I guess, before I was invited to attend a training group. Uh, with Tuan Bryan. And, uh, and then when I got there, it was, you know, it was very much, uh, it was love at first sight. I was expecting one thing. I was expecting, you know, this kind of like cool guy, tactical uh, type of training. And what I got was a lesson on the monopo. And what I got was discussions about a guy named Lapu Lapu. And what I got was an education on tribal weapons. And that was just my first class. And I realized, you know, the writer in me, came alive. The Hollywood writer in me came alive and said, you know, there's something more going on with the system. It's not just kicking pads. It's not just stick drills. There is some kind of mission here. And I don't know what it is yet, but I want to be a part of it. And so I, I kept coming back. Um, and I came back because of the people, you know, they were, they were just different. In SIOC, it's interesting. There's a lot of, in any given class, there'll be a lot of guys who are like black belts and something else who are looking for Kind of a more advanced degree in violence and thinking and there's also a lot of beginners like people that have never had martial arts training before and sometimes that's like a better way to get into it because as a muay thai guy i had a lot of we call them training scars um i did not know how to do something as basic as triangle footwork which any anyone that does fma that's just kind of in their blood i it took me two years to figure that out the right way <laughs> you know like i had to get special training for that um, but it was the people and realizing that everybody in Sayak has another thing that they're good at. Like Sayak is not a thing where like everyone that does, they're only good at that. Everyone's bringing multiple skill sets. And to me, that's a mastery thing. And that was just something different that I, I was tracking uh, from the very beginning. And that's why I stuck around. That's awesome. I can hear the passion in your, your guys' voices when you talk about it. It seems like it's kind of touched the chord with you guys. Absolutely. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned Muay Thai, Dave. Uh, what other styles of martial arts have you practiced? Well, you know, of course I did, you know, I, amateur jiu-jitsu. When I was younger, I did, you know, taekwondo and stuff. Um, the, the martial art that I actually picked up and got pretty serious about after I started training Sayak is Tai Chi. Um, and I met my Tai Chi instructor through Tuhan Raf. Uh, her name is Li Jing. 
And she's like a super famous wushu athlete. And she has a huge school in Arcadia, just outside of LA in a very Chinese area. And I'm half Chinese and I never had trained Chinese martial arts before. So when Tuan Rath introduced me to her, it was kind of like, you know, I didn't know, I, I wanted to seek out training for her in the internal styles. And, you know, she kind of offered to train me. And it was a little awkward because Tuan Rath, I consider him to be one of my instructors and one of my mentors. And how do you tell your Sayoc mentor that you want to train in something else at the same time? And I ran it by him. I talked to him about it. He said, oh, no, you absolutely need to train with this woman. She's a master. And mastery is universal. And training with her will only make your Sayoc better. And, you know, once I started competing in Tai Chi in the past couple of years, you know, it's a high pressure situation uh, with lots of people watching. And I found that my Sayoc actually helped my Tai Chi as well. So it's been a really symbiotic relationship between the two. Wow. Uh, Patrick, you're a Muay Thai uh, practitioner as well, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, back when I, I started training in Salt Lake City, I, I trained with my, my first instructor there. Uh, his name's girl Will Bernalis. And I had seen The Hunted and the first Bourne movie. And so I called him up because he had Filipino martial arts on his website. And I, and I was like, hey, you guys do that knife stuff, right? And he was like, yeah, we got knife stuff. But, you know, he's also he's an incredible grappler, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and CSW. He's a great Muay Thai coach. He's now like a, a master instructor in the uh, World Thai Boxing Association. So I was like, hey, yeah, that's awesome. He also teaches Wing Chun, JKD, all that stuff. I was like, that's great, but you you do the knife stuff, right? <laughs> and he was like, he's like, yeah, man, come on in, try it out. And I started training with him uh, doing Kali, and he's under uh, a guru, Dan in Osanto. And I trained there for a while before I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which, which I, I got really into for a long time, but I got really into Muay Thai. And uh, he has a great instructor program. The, the World Thai Boxing Association has a great instructor program uh, under Ajahn Chai Sirisu uh, from Thailand, who, who was, you know, he brought Muay Thai over in the late 60s and was, you know, doing Muay Thai with Bruce Lee while Guru Dan in Osanta was doing, you know, Kali with Bruce Lee. He was teaching, you know, JKD at the time or Junfan uh, kickboxing. And so, you know, he's from way back and he's been teaching Muay Thai for a long time. So I got really, really into it, really passionate about it. I went the instructor path uh, and got my instructorship through uh, and Dan in Osanto and um, was doing that for a long time. Of course, like when you train under that umbrella, there's a lot of very, you know, skillful people who like to mix the arts. So I, I got into grappling for a long time. Uh, I got into uh, JKD for a while, C-Lot and stuff like that. Uh, even a little capoeira, uh, though nobody nobody with my physical appearance should be doing capoeira. It ruins. <laughs> but but uh, from there, yeah, I, I, that's that's that was basically my my passion for a long time, and then and then I found Sayak, and now it's like. It's like Dave says, you kind of notice after training Sayak for a while, you notice where though your, your previous experience in Muay Thai or grappling, it gives you a lot of great attributes and a lot of great, you know, the, the ability to develop power to kick, use your body ergonomically and that sort of thing. It also, you know, Muay Thai is a sport art. It's, it's a beautiful sport art uh, and it comes along with some, some habits some training scars that uh, that prove somewhat detrimental actually when you start looking at the application of the blade introducing the blade into that that type of an art 
Um, like Dave said, it, it puts that that kind of a style in trouble very quickly because you can hit very hard, but you know, a kid with a red marker is going to put red marker all over your body unless you can do something about it. You know, and that red marker could be anything. It could be a blade. It could be anything. And uh, sure. and so I started getting very serious about Psyoc and you know. Once you start training it, in my opinion, there's so many like-minded people and the training is at such a high level, it, it requires and expects mastery. <laughs> it's like if you're going to do it seriously, I, I feel, you know, it's like you're walking that path. Okay. So you've gone through a bunch of styles on your way to Sayoc. Now that you're here, you're going to be here for a while. Are you going to maybe expand further and you know, branch out into other things or have you found your home, so to speak, and this is going to be it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I'm looking at somewhere around 11 or 12 years of, of experience and experimentation through different types of, you know, teaching formulas, different types of, uh, arts, whether they're combative or sport based. And Psyoc is just by far the, the most applicable and um, uh, not, not only to combatives or, or, you know, protecting yourself or, uh, you know, whatever that is, but also to mastering yourself, like walking the labyrinth of life. It, it is, it's more about that once you really get into it. I mean, the, the, the beautiful motion of it is just the beginning, just the tip of the iceberg. And, uh, you know, I, I've never found an art that applies so deeply to my profession and my personal life. Um, I just sigh off when I work on any scene nowadays, you know, it's, uh, I take my past experience. I, I apply the, the formulas and filters I've learned training Psyoc and it just amplifies and simplifies everything. Um, I don't think I would branch out at this point. I think that, uh, mastery is definitely trackable. Uh, it's universal. And I've, I've basically just like walked into a tribe of masters and uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to stay and, and uh, do the reps with all of them. The, the mastery and uh, the repetitions, you, you touched on it. There's a quote on your IMDb, Dave, that uh, I wanted to talk to you about specifically. I'm going to read the quote first and then we'll get into it. But uh, it says, everyone talks about 10,000 repetitions to gain mastery. I disagree. What's your definition of repetition? How do I know it's correct? My life isn't about doing 10,000 repetitions of anything. My life is one repetition that's perfect and it never ends until I'm dead. That's the quote. And I I think that quote is awesome because I had always had problems with uh, repetition uh, being the key because like you, I was like, well, you know, what if you do it wrong the first time, then you're going to just do it wrong 10,000 times, right? But it was Bruce Lee that said that 10,000 times, uh, quote, originally. Uh, but I, I think that he would agree that pr- uh, practicing it correctly is more important than doing it 10,000 times. But you mentioned that that philosophy carries with you through all of your work. How do you do that? How do you translate uh, the Sayoc, uh philosophy into your Hollywood work life? Well, with that particular piece of, uh, of you know, that idea – it goes back to the blade because with a blade, you only get one chance, right? So you, you don't have, you can't be like imperfect or you die. And in Sayak, there's, you know, there's three responses. Uh, there's a reflexive response, a conditioned response, and a correct response. Um, a correct response is the highest level. It's a perfect response. Uh, everyone begins 
with a reflexive response to any situation. Um, if I throw a rock at your head, you're going to give me a reflexive response if you have no training. But uh, once I teach you how to catch a rock, uh, you start to have conditioned responses. You can see the, you can see my uh, body mechanics as I'm winding up. You might be able to be fast enough to track what's in my hand because I've trained you to look at someone's wingspan and what's around their waistline and what they're holding in their hands at all times. And so now you're starting to see the rock before it's released. And once the rock is thrown, you may know I may have taught you how to angle your body to catch that rock perfectly, perfectly. But you still need to be in a training scenario to be able to execute that condition response. So you've been evolved from uh, a reflexive response to a condition response, but it's not seamless yet. Uh, the correct response is when I call your name and I throw a rock at you and you catch it without thinking about it. At that point, with the correct response, the correct response is when it becomes reflexive. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that I apply that in, you know, for instance, with my writing, so I write television for a living is, uh, you know, people always talk about in, in the writing world, uh, well, write your first draft and then put it in a drawer for two weeks and don't show it to anybody until you've read it again two weeks later because you'll see just how bad it really is. Um, and, and, you know, that, which is a, it's, a, it's a pithy thing, right? But what they're really saying is don't show anyone your reflexive response. They're saying, wait, you know, mm. like put some more juice on it, like make sure it's conditioned. And so never trust the reflexive response because it's usually wrong because it's just coming from our biological evolutions of like the lizard brain, you know? So whereas before SIOC, I thought, I thought so much of my talent, my gifts that I would just show people my first draft. I'm that good. I'm better than most people, but to succeed at like the top 1% level in Hollywood, reflexive responses are not enough. Uh, so now the condition response becomes, you know, I'll be working on a TV show with Patrick and I'll say, Hey, I've written this scene for your character. I haven't shown anyone yet. Take a look at it and tell me what you think. And he'll give me his opinions. And now the response is becoming conditioned. I'm getting training. This is how he thinks. This is what the show is. And eventually down the line, hopefully what's happened is I'll be able to do a correct response, which is knowing exactly how to write that scene for that show, for that actor, in a way that when people see it for the first time, it's the perfect example of it. Will it take me a little while longer to do that? Yes. Uh, am I going to get the emotional adrenaline rush of banging something out of my keyboard and showing it to someone immediately and having them say it's good, yeah, I'm going to lose out on that emotional adrenaline rush. But I am going to gain kind of a logical order of thinking. And because the first time people see my work now, it's not going to be the flailing, uh, drowning, reflexive response. It's going to be the correct one. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you've got that training partner like you would in the studio, <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So, Patrick, as an actor who has attained a high skill level in martial arts, by the way, Almost Famous is going to be like 20 years old soon, right? I think it is 20 years old this year. Yeah. <laughs> so on the other end of that, have you actively sought out projects where you might be able to put some of your martial arts skills on display? Or is it something that you'd rather keep personal and separate? That's a great question. You know, I, I came to particularly Filipino martial arts through filmmaking. You know, I watched The Hunted, I watched The Born Identity, and I was like, I want to be able to move like that. I want to train whatever that is. And um, it, it was also an encouraging thing because I was watching uh, films with lead actors like Benicio Del Toro, who's basically an art house actor, and Matt Damon, who's kind of an everyman actor. Uh, both highly, highly skilled actors that are not known for being 
badass or dangerous or you know fighters by any means and so the initial appearance of them in those roles was counterintuitive and i i fit into that sort of counterintuitive space i don't think i'm perceived right away as a fighter or a dangerous badass or anything like that and i've done a lot of indie art house dramas and comedies and things like that so in the beginning yeah i was like hey if if these guys can can do it you know maybe i can get a chance to do something like that as well and uh and you know six months to three years into my training you know i was i it felt like i was just learning all this new information all the time and i was very excited and i you know we'll, we'll be talking to my agents at the time and and i was like you know let's let's get something crazy action so that basically when i look back on it i was like let's get something that Psyoc Kali is choreographing so that I can train Sylock. <laughs> that, that was basically my thought process for a long time, and then very smart. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, well, eventually I was like, oh, I can just go train Sylock. <laughs> so yeah, but like I, uh, I got to a point where the martial arts was its own journey for me, and, and it was its own passion for me. The business of acting, the um, the industrial side of it. Uh, getting getting auditions, getting you know, getting in the room, booking roles, all of that sort of thing is an arduous process. It can be. There's you you know, you maybe score five percent of the time if you're doing really really awesome work. You know, you do a lot of auditions and you get told no a lot of the time. And so if you start to base your self worth on some arbitrary metric of how you know how many films you're doing or how many auditions you have or how much you're being paid, it starts to drive you a little bit crazy, I think. And uh, I watched that happen to, to friends in the business, and I certainly felt it early on, you know, that kind of thing. But as soon as I had a, a path to walk that showed me progression and, and worth on its own, I, I, I dove into it. I mean, I, I found most of the things that are meaningful in my life through martial arts training including my wife. And so at a certain point I was like, well, this is now, this is now my, my, my life path. You know, this is what I do for my life. This is where I feel the progression. This is where I feel the growth. And, uh, and I, you know, I still care very much and I'm very passionate about acting. It's my main, my, it's my only living, you know, so it's a, it's a craft that I uh, am committed to wholeheartedly, but now I have this other path that keeps me sustained and, and is always surprising me. It's always, it's keeping me passionate. There's always, you know, there's always another turn in the labyrinth for me and, and a new discovery coming. Um, and so at this point, I think if it were to be something uh, that I would go for that, that had, you know, action elements, clearly Treadstone is going to have action elements to it. But um, I find myself very motivated to, to work with Dave and work with Tuan Raff and other members of, of the SIA try to bring that kind of stuff to the screen, to TV and film and that sort of thing. That's what excites me. I'm also a bit of a snob when I watch movies. You know, I think a lot of martial artists are when you watch things, you're like, well, like everybody thinks that, but, but uh, I, I believe Sayak really can. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so that's what I'm, that's what I'm interested in. If it's going to be something awesome, I want it to be as awesome as it can be. Yeah. And, and I can just say, you know, from a behind the scenes point of view, you know, Till and Ralph and myself and Sayak Combat Choreography, we've worked with some really awesome actors like 
LL Cool J, Danny Trejo, you know, Priyanka Chopra to a certain extent. Um, but they're all, they don't, like, they're not lifelong martial artists like Patrick. And so just as an aside, uh, when I came on Treadstone, um, Patrick hadn't been cast in that role yet. And, you know, the studio liked him, network liked him, uh, the guys in charge of the show liked him. And uh, we, you know, collectively, our training group, we really wanted to do something uh, that would put him over the top in terms of getting this role. And so I think I, you know, I was not present because I was already working, uh, writing, you know, at a crazy rate for the show. And Patrick and the Sayak guys got together and they created this incredible demo reel of Patrick being a top level apex predator, you know, <laughs> like a stunt reel like I'd never seen before. And it was beautifully shot. It was in our training space. It was Patrick mowing down a bunch of Sayak guys who have training and know how to deal with those responses. And they did it so fast. They did it in like, how many days did it take you guys to do it? Two days, two days of filming. Anybody that, you know, works in the film or TV business knows that it takes, you know, a huge amount of time to do an elaborate multi-man fight sequence. And once the studio network saw that, they were like, we got to, this is our guy. This is obviously a Treadstone uh, asset, you know, and so just being able to turn that over quickly is something that you get when, as a producer, you're working with a trained actor who's, you know, bought in already. A lot of the times on a set, you get the actor that like, you know, maybe he's done a couple kickboxing lessons and he thinks he knows some stuff. And there's a certain degree of having to coax him to buy into a certain system. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go in from the beginning and everyone is synced up on what we're, what we're trying to do, it can be a beautiful thing because a lot of things can get done quickly and it can look awesome. Yeah. Now you guys touched on that actual martial arts and Hollywood martial arts being, you know, vastly different. Uh, and you guys have worked with some of the coolest and uh, most talented martial artists out there. What do you think are some great examples of accurately portrayed yet still uh, dynamically visualized on screen martial arts in TV or movies? I uh, I mean, obviously, I'm going to talk about the hunted again because it's my intro. <laughs> to, like, yeah. Thinking, but but uh, I mean, also responsible for that is a stunt coordinator that I've worked with and a good friend of mine, Hiro Koda, who, in my opinion, is the best in the business. I mean, I it's I'm biased also because I've worked with him, but he comes from a legit martial arts competition background. The guy is extremely creative and great at incorporating authenticity and keeping the storytelling alive. And so him along with, you know, Tuan Raff and Tuan Tom created motion that, that, you know, got me into training FMA. And of course the born, the born movies, I, I love those. There's also a lot of the old solid things, anything with Toshiro Mifune that, and you know, like Dave says, that's all coming from actors who, who, who are willing to spend the time to do reps and train. Like when you're watching wide shots in Yojimbo of Toshiro Mifune slicing dudes up, like you could tell it wasn't really planned very well. It's just him moving like a total monster, you know, like um, it's just a guy who's really good with a, a blade doing that stuff. What about you? Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, Patrick's talking about the motion piece. And, and I think that's, and you know, super important to me. Actually, the way that I... I evaluate a fight scene or, you know, a combat choreography in Hollywood is how do I feel after I've seen the scene? Yeah. Um, do I walk more like a predator or am I just walking like Dave Kalstein? You know, and so there are movies that you may not think of them at first as martial arts movies, but they, they give you that that predatory vibe that kind of what to me is a true martial artist, a, 
a person comfortable with violence and its implications. And uh, one of those movies, it's it's collateral. Mm. You know, the way Tom Cruise uh, occupies the screen and, you know, that classic nightclub fight where he see him solve the problem in real time. And, uh, you know, in a way that hasn't been shot like that before is amazing. Uh, you know, uh, Apocalypto, a movie that no, not a lot of people would define as a martial arts movie. It has an energy to it that when you're done watching it, uh, even though you've watched a bunch, I think they're Aztec, uh, Aztec warriors, and it's not typically what you've heard about martial arts being. You're like, oh, I feel like I'm one of those people now. I'm looking over my shoulder in a way that is, a, you know, a feeder mindset, which is something we talk about in Sayak. And, you know, in terms of, uh, since we're talking about martial arts vibes in movies, like uh, there's a movie called Whiplash. Uh, it's about a drummer and that movie has more martial arts in it than a lot of martial arts movies, even the, the guys playing the drums. True. Um, it, it's a movie about mastery, you know, and if martial artists could have half of that drummer's dedication, they would be masters very quickly. Um, cause they understood the value of, of, you know, having a great teacher, uh, the mentor student relationship. Uh, one of the things we talk about in SIOC is, uh, if you're comfortable, you're not really training. And, uh, you know, Whiplash is a movie about a student being really uncomfortable, but being pushed to his limits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, for me, but that's kind of the first that's thing. A great, it's a great answer. It makes me think of uh, Last of the Mohicans. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah. That was one where the motion element of it was cool, but the way that Chigachkuk and his brother and father move through the environment, mm -hmm. the way they affect every oh, room yeah. they go into, every, every group that they go into... I remember watching that as a kid. We, my dad would put that on. We would watch it uh, with my, my cousin and my little brother. And then we would take our bows out into the woods in the mountains of Utah and move around like those guys. Like mm -hmm. we would do like group stalking movement, like predatorially, you know. Yeah. It's that, that kind of lasting impression. Since we're on the topic of movies real quick, I, you know, I just, it brought to mind a story about Pomanatu on Sayak. Uh, I was with a small group of instructors at his home in Florida uh, some years ago, and we had just gone through a very, very intense kind of uh, non-motion lesson. Like part of SIOC is also the mindset, and it was grueling, and we were all totally fried. And um, after the lesson was done, uh, Pamana Tuan looked at us and he said, you're shaken and stirred. That's how I like the minds. Now go watch Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> and and we, uh, we went over to the living room and this group of guys, uh, you know, we watched Dumb and... It was actually the first Dumb and Dumber. First Dumb and Dumber. And I'd never seen it before. Why? Because I was so serious about my life and so serious about martial arts that I only wanted to watch Crouching Tiger and movies like that. You know? so now I'm dying laughing. I'm, my tears are in my eyes and there's another guy, one of my... Close friends was there, and we were just we were having the time of our lives. Um, and afterwards, I said to Pomona Tuan, I had him one on one. I said, you know, I laughed so hard. How did you know that was the perfect movie to show us at this martial arts intensive training weekend? And he said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, he said, because what we train is a deadly art, we need to laugh with each other. And he's right because. Without that ability to laugh and to be aware of oneself and unaware with your brothers and just give into the energy of the moment is so important when you've spent hours and hours talking about, you know, life or death stakes or training to do life or death things. And um, so Dumb and Dumber has become one of my favorite martial arts movies.
<laughs> That's interesting that you say that because uh, I, uh, I spoke with a, a Kung Fu film historian, Rick Myers, uh, a while ago, and he made a distinction between Kung Fu and martial arts. Kung Fu being the mastery of whatever it is that you put your mind to. You know, it, it could be sewing, it could be uh, singing, it could be, you know, rowing or whatever. But you can call yourself a, a Kung Fu master when you have put your whole self into whatever it is that you're trying to learn and you attain mastery over that. It doesn't need to be martial arts. Martial arts, he's separated from Kung Fu specifically. Um, but we also grew up in the era of the Kung Fu movies of the 70s. So it, are you guys familiar with those movies? Sure. Yeah. Like the Shaw Brothers films? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Shaw, Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, all that stuff. Yeah. So what is your take on that depiction of martial arts? I always loved that. I mean, that's what got me and my uh, younger brother into Kempo Karate when we were very young, when uh, I was probably 12 and he was, I don't know, seven or eight, something like that. Um, you know, we had watched a few of them. And then uh, my dad was like, oh, you guys are going to like Bruce Lee. And he threw on, I think, uh, Fist of Fury. And um, we watched that. And Bruce Lee was telling a, a story with the fights in those films in a way that I hadn't seen in those other sort of older sort of um, Chinese theater style productions uh, and those, those Kung Fu sort of fantasies. It was like, uh, Bruce Lee was bringing this grounded sort of character-driven authenticity to it, uh, which really resonated a lot with me. He was doing something that humans can do, you know, with with a lot of physical and mental and spiritual dedication. And uh, and I remember that that affected me pretty pretty profoundly. That's why you know pretty immediately after that I was like, I want to learn to do that. I want to learn to to. Uh, to have that that kind of skill set, so we, we signed up. In, we were in Salt Lake City in the '80s, mind you. So we signed up for Kempo. <laughs> yeah, those movies—they uh, had a huge impact on me because, as you know, at the time I was like, uh, I'm half Chinese, but I, you can tell that I'm Chinese when you see me. And I was growing up in a very white, white suburb in Michigan outside Detroit, and uh, you know the the depiction of of men in those movies as heroes, and also women, by the way was so powerful and I would watch those movies and I would say that's what a Chinese guy should be you know like like disciplined strong powerful decisive because I wasn't seeing that anywhere else in popular culture at the time it was like Bruce Lee or nothing you know so I would tell my mom you know who's Chinese I'd say I want to be I want to be like this guy in the man with the golden arms you know I would want to be like this guy in the five deadly venoms and she was little mortified that she wanted me to become a Chinese doctor. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it, at a certain time, I mean, things are changing slowly now, but th they are changing. At a certain time, for an Asian guy like myself, finding a depiction, a powerful depiction of people that look like you was so important. And in fact, uh, the first kind of young kid I saw like me that looked like me on TV was Ernie Reyes Jr. and Sidekicks. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, people of a certain generation, especially Asians, you know, Filipino guys, I'm sure, remember that show. And um, it was, you know, 20 something years later, um, I was working on an episode of NCIS Los Angeles and I was looking and I'd written this badass kind of uh, Gurkha character, this, you know, uh, mercenary guy from a far off place who was really good at martial arts. And I didn't know who to cast. And uh, I was talking to Tuan Rath about it because he was going to do the fight choreography for that episode. 
And he said, what's Ernie Reyes Jr. doing nowadays? And I was like, stop. I'm like, we're never going to get Ernie to do this show. He's Ernie Reyes Jr. <laughs> and, uh, and I called my casting director up and I said, Ernie Reyes Jr., he will never do it, but, you know, make an offer. And she goes, you mean the guy that was in the fight scene with The Rock in the rundown? And I was like, she goes, she yeah. goes he's not going to do your show. And I was like, well, I'm like, at this point, I was kind of jammed up because there was really no one else that could act that we – you know, could also do the fights. And we were able to get a message out to him. He was living in Arizona at the time and stopped acting. Um, and he drove up three weeks before the scene was supposed to be, or the episode was supposed to be filmed and sat at my house with the script, uh, with a house full of sock guys asking questions, learning the fight choreography, spending hours on it. Um, I remember uh, Tuan Pat played the role of LL Cool J in a fight, awesome. and Tuan Brian played Chris O'Donnell, <laughs> and they were acting it out on my deck. And so by the time we got to the set, what I, you know, the director said, no one's going to be able to pull off this fight. Whoever you cast, how can he do this? He's got to be like Michael Jordan. And we dropped Ernie in, and uh, Ernie's back was to where I was standing. I remember this day, and this older guy was walking up in like a like a athletic suit, like a sweatsuit. And he had a duffel bag and slick black hair. And on a Hollywood set, it's not easy to get on a set. Like, you have to be cleared. And I didn't know who this guy was walking up to me. Um, and so I just said to him, I'm, excuse me, sir, can I help you? And he said, he said that's my son. <laughs> and I said, I said, Ernie Reyes, I'm like, you're Ernie Reyes senior? And he said, yeah. And he smiled at me, and you could tell he was so proud. And Ernie, <laughs> did, Ernie didn't see his dad there. And uh, they, Ernie went off and did the fight scene. He turned around and saw his dad and they had this moment and they, you know, shared this hug. And afterwards I took Ernie Jr. aside and I said, was that a good moment for you and your dad being here on the set again? And he said, yeah, when I was doing one of those t old TV show sidekicks, uh, we shared a studio apartment just down the block from where we're shooting right now. Wow. And I remember eating canned dinners with him cooked off a hot plate. And we had no money. And so him coming wow. 20, 30 years later is a huge moment. You know, I guess this is my roundabout way of answering your question about those Kung Fu movies. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and actually Ernie trains with us today. He's part of our training group. He never stopped. Training, so, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I had Ernie on the show a while ago and uh, I was talking with him about how he has not lost a step at all from his days on The Last Dragon. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's dangerous. Yeah. That's fantastic. What a great story. Now, uh, speaking of that, um, you guys have thrown around uh, FMA uh, as we've talked tonight. Uh, I've spoken with some action film directors in the Philippines, uh, Sonny Sison, Vincent Sobrano. They're doing their part to actively raise the profile of FMA on screen. Now, uh, you, we saw a little bit of it in the Jason Bourne films. Um, but when, we, when you see that movement on screen... No one but the cast and crew knows that the basis of that is FMA, right? It wasn't marketed as a Filipino martial art. There's no ambassador, as far as I can tell, uh, that's saying, hey, this is the Filipino martial arts. This is, like you guys sound like you could be, this is Sayak Kali here on display. Um, Raft did a little bit of that with The Hunted, which, Patrick, you've talked about several times tonight. What do you guys think? I think FMA would add a whole new dynamic to cinematic martial arts. It, is there an ambassador out there? Do we need someone to say, guys, this is FMA. This is something that needs to be celebrated on screen. Absolutely. I mean, you know, to me, it's, it's funny because I, I was able to tell that Jason Bourne and, uh, and Benicio's character were moving differently than anybody I'd seen 
growing up uh, in, in kung fu movies or anything else, uh, Japanese movies with martial arts in them, you know, it, it was an entirely different style of movement. And, and it conveyed an entirely different type of thinking, which was a huge thing to me because that's, that's what makes guys like uh, Jason Bourne so unique is the way that he, that he thinks through a problem like Dave's talking about in Collateral, seeing the character think their way through, through something, um, but also doing it in a very violent way uh, has always been interesting to me. And there's, there's a huge component of thought that goes into Filipino martial arts and just the fact that it is still so prevalent in the martial arts world uh, is a testament to how much thought went into its creation back when it was a tribal art, when it, when it was used to um, fight for your, your tribe, your family, everything that you held dear against other tribes and then eventually against new technology, being the, the Spanish conquistadors with different types of armor, different types of blade design and uh, even you know gunpowder and stuff like that. And so it had to evolve or it would have disappeared. We wouldn't know about it. And so there's so much great knowledge that comes from it. And that, I think, creates such a unique perspective on violence, we'll say, or action, um, that when I see it in film, I get very, very excited. Even if I, even if I think it could be better, you know, or what, whatever, I get very, very proud because it's what it's something I'm very passionate about, you know. And um, to me, you know, I've trained a lot of FMA, and to me, the the, uh, the apex of the FMA world is Sayakali. If if anybody were to, you know, bring it to a wider audience, I think it would be too on Raf and and, and Sayakali. Yeah, I think to answer your question, yeah, I think that there needs to be a dedicated push by filmmakers and writers and choreographers and actors who train it to talk about what they're doing. Um, I believe in attribution. I think that for a long time, people were like, in Hollywood, people were just happy to be here. Like, oh, no, man, we don't have to push to, to get attribution to, to take our credit because we're just happy to be here. We don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. And I was like that in the beginning, too. And now it's like, I don't care if people think that I'm pushing something. I don't care if people think that I'm super committed to something, um, whether it's a book I've read, a martial art I train, or a way I live my life. Um, I think people need to be proud of the fact it's a Filipino martial art. Yeah. And where that starts is with actors like Patrick saying, FMA, 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 when they're doing press. Uh, for me, it's, it's when I pitch a TV show. It's being unapologetic about where the, the roots of this are. Um, you know, especially with social media, there's this trend where people just take other people's material and pass it off as their own. And uh, Patrick and I can both tell you a million stories in Hollywood of, of writers, directors, uh, stunt choreographers that just, it's like they're going to the buffet and they're gonna take, they're gonna fill their plate with everything that's available at the buffet and they're not gonna talk about where they got it from because if they don't talk about it, everyone may think that they invented it. Um, and, and that's usually not the case. Usually it came from somewhere. Um, something that's good enough to make it on the screen has come from somewhere. And so uh, I think people need to stay, creators need to stand up for themselves. And whether that's putting attribution on the page, uh, like, you know, is it a Filipino guy doing FMA? That's powerful. Um, yeah. You know, like that's something like, what's wrong with that? Why does it have to be a white guy? You know, um, and taking a stand and saying, you know, no, we're going to cast this type of actor. Uh, or it's doing interviews 
like with like this or going to Comic-Con and saying, you know what, the motion that you're talking about, uh, that has a name, it's Filipino martial arts. Um, or even, you know, like I remember in, uh, there was an episode of NCIS LA where uh, LL Cool J and Chris O'Donnell uh, monopode uh, this older woman who's like a mentor to the team, you know, and they did the monopole. And it's like, in the beginning, the actors weren't sure why they were doing this. They were like, this might be a little cheesy. Like it, it's unfamiliar to us. Can you explain to us why we want this in the show? And really what they were asking me was convince me why I should be doing this on national television. Um, and once I was able to sit with them for five minutes and tell them everything, explain it to them. And then Tuan Rap spoke up. He was on set with me and they respected the hell out of him because he had been engineering their motion, their combat choreography. Once Tuan Raf told them, these actors, that that's what he did with his instructor and with his mentor, they had no problems doing it. And they had no problems, you know, basically carrying out a very specific cultural ritual, a sign of respect on TV as non-Filipinos. They bought into it. So the onus is on the creators to, you know, to get that message across, to make it to the point and make it so uncomfortable for people <laughs> where it would be weird. If you didn't mention, <laughs> yeah. that's great. And I, you know, with the passion that you guys show for uh, Sayoc uh, and FMA in general, I, I hope that you guys are the vanguard of that. I hope you guys uh, do a lot more stuff where you absolutely push that kind of thing, and uh, just uh, not just for FMA, but for yourselves, because that passion is so real and so palpable. Yeah, well, yeah, there are plans. Yeah, we're that's just cool. getting started. Yep. <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's let's touch on Treadstone now while we're while we're still here. Treadstone set in the Bourne universe. You can't tell us a lot because uh, it's uh, about to drop in October. But what can you share uh, with us right now? Um, well, uh, what I can tell you is I'm a huge fan of the Bourne movies. Uh, I literally have watched them all, you know, hundreds of times. And the opportunity to, to write for a show like this, I had to do it. And for fans of the films, they won't be disappointed. It's the same tone, uh, the same type of human stories and characters and, you know, explosive action that they're coming to expect. Um, but it's kind of done in a fresh way. I mean, uh, just based on what I can tell you, it's like it's uh, with Jason Bourne movies, you're getting a very quick clip of his life at that moment. Like, I think if you take the first three Bourne movies, the total timeline that's gone by is like maybe three weeks across those three movies. They happen very quickly. Uh, Treadstone, the series answers the question of, A, what would it be like to spend time with people like this for a longer amount of time? And B, which was one of the most fascinating things to me, is how are these Treadstone assets trained? Um, we learn a lot about uh, in the series about how you would make a Jason Bourne, why they pick certain people, what they put them through that's different than anything you've seen before. And then once you've created these perfect weapons, what do you do with them? And also a big story we get into um, and something that touches on uh, Patrick's character is why these guys sign up for the program in the first place. Mm -hmm. What drives someone to walk through that door and say, you can take my name, you can take my life, you can take my memory, turn me into the ultimate weapon. And so that's, it's really telling those stories and just what their lives are like. Uh, do they have wives or girlfriends? Do they, you know, what is their lives like when they're not on mission? Um, and how do they maintain their sanity while they're doing it? Um, it's a heavily serialized show. It's definitely um, something that's going to keep you back, keep, keep you coming back for more. It's super international. Uh, in the time that I was there, I personally, uh, we were based in Budapest and uh, we shot in India, in New Delhi, in Dharamsala, Africa, Seoul, South Korea, Taiwan, 
Columbia, Bogota, Paris, London. It was like a movie. It was like we were shooting a born movie in terms of this has to be real. We can't say this is Paris. We have to go to Paris and we have to, you know, do this fight scene there. We have to have this moment happen uh, in Africa. Yeah. And, and so the, the audience will really go on quite a journey with us, I think. Cool. And Patrick, what can you tell us other than who your character is and what he does? <laughs> I think they've, they've released the name of the character. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So I play a character okay. called Stephen Haynes. And what, what I found really exciting about it, I mean, obviously, I cite you know, the hunted and the born identity as the big reasons for me training FMA in the first place, which led me to Sayak Kali. Um, so to be able to work on the same IP that, you know, is a huge influence in, in the way that, you know, I train and live my life was uh, a great opportunity. And also to work with, you know, a brother, to, to work with Dave, somebody who, you know, I respect and I'm excited about artistically and professionally. So, it was like a win-win situation for me. And once I got into it, uh, I got to read the scripts. And I, I can't say much, but what was exciting for me is I get to portray a character that has a different tone than anything I've seen in the movies so far. The character Stephen Haynes has a lot of darkness around him, and uh, it's a very different intensity and tone that that still captures you know, the essence of the person and, and the morality of the, the program and the uh, the operators involved or the assets involved. And um, Dave wrote some very, very, very good um, meaty scenes for me to, to, to get into. Yeah, there was a day that uh, some of the people from the studio, the executives were, they'd flown out to Budapest, we were shooting, and they came up to me afterwards and they were pointing at Patrick and they said, that's the kid from Almost Famous? I can't believe it. Because, <laughs> um, you know, Patrick's being pretty modest, uh, but, you know, he went through a physical transformation for this role. He put on, how many pounds you put on? For this one, probably 20. Yeah, something. 20 pounds. That's, you know, a lot of muscle and, you know, strength there. And, um, you know, and we, you know, there was a lot of times when we would be working together and, like one of the things that we train in sock, you know, he's my training partner. And so there's a lot of nonverbal cues that happen and just, you know, uh, communication that isn't out loud. And so a lot of the situations you're dealing with on a TV show, having those, those reps with someone is really powerful because like we punch each other in the face and stab each other a bunch of times. Like what professionally is going to get in between us? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so that was, that's just, that's an awesome thing. And it's very rare, you know, how, how many times can someone in any profession say, I got to work on a really uh, high energy, stressful job with one of my closest friends and training partners from my martial arts class? You know, that's, yeah. it's, um, unless you fight for the UFC, that probably doesn't happen. Yeah. Very cool. All right, guys, I've kept you a long time. So, uh, you guys ready to do a quick lightning round to have some fun? Sure. <laughs> All right. First thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Ready. Dave, what is Patrick's weakest kick? Uh, his snap kick. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, what is Dave's weakest punch? Dave's weakest punch? Oh, my God. <laughs> his, his, his physical ones. His force punches are much more powerful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, Dave, have you ever seen Patrick Fugit and Pete Buttigieg in the same room? A Buttigieg? Oh, the presidential candidate? I have yeah. not. I have not. Um, oh, is this the guy that he's, people say? He's the mayor from Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there is a resemblance there. There. Okay. I Somebody tagged me on an Instagram post about this guy yeah. or something like that. It's like you without the beard a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
it's so strange. I, I mean, I guess there's a resemblance, but I saw that meme and I'm like, really? I, I haven't seen a photo of him. I'd have to look it up, but I believe it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Patrick, if you had to have a dance-off to save your life, which of you wins? Uh, the two of us? Yes. Don't be honest, Patrick. I would win. I grew up doing ballet, though, so it's not really a, a, a fair fight. Nice, nice. Uh, what would be your killer dance move to ice the contest? Uh, the worm. What else would you <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, uh, Dave, can you conjugate Patrick's last name? Fuget. Fuget. Fugit, Fugit, that's it. Fugit, Fugit, Fugit. <laughs> that's close enough. Uh, By the way, that's, uh, that's an example of uh, reflexive conditioning correct response. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final lightning round question, and uh, it's a trick question, so hopefully you guys get it right. But what is your favorite podcast about kung fu, martial arts, TV, and entertainment? Kung Fu Driver. Nice, nice. <laughs> Yeah. Sweet. All right. So give us the release dates for Treadstone and then give me a, an idea of what you guys are working on individually beyond this. Um, Patrick, you answer while I look up the date. What, uh, let's see, what I just finished doing was a, uh, an indie film with some really talented young filmmakers, the Huertas brothers. It's called My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. Um, they tell me they've just finished uh, a, the edit. Um, I can't wait to see it. I'm sure they're going to submit it to festivals and hopefully I'll see it on that circuit. Um, other than that, I'm working on, you know, walking the labyrinth, the path of mastery and, and looking forward to being a father. Oh yeah. That's going to be the, the biggest adventure by far. I'm so excited. Treadstone premieres October 15th on USA Network. Internationally, it'll be shown on uh, Amazon Prime. So that's super exciting. Uh, and right now I'm just taking a break from Treadstone and chilling out. Um, I'm looking forward to season two of it, obviously. And uh, just kind of working on some, some, you know, some of my own projects, uh, things that can't really talk a whole lot about right now, but I'm excited about. Yeah. Um, so right now, but right now really it's, it's taking a breather um, from the frenetic pace that, you know, we've been going through the past four months. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. And where can, uh, where can my audience go to follow you guys? Uh, where can they go to follow you? Oh, uh, I, I, I just have an Instagram, but I just post a bunch of black and white photos on there that aren't of me. It's, uh, it's probably my name. It's probably just Patrick Fugit. Okay. Um, I am not on social media because oh, is the last one of the last shows I worked on, um, I uh, was working with Priyanka Chopra. And don't ever have her follow you on social media because if she does, you're going to get about 100,000 people following you that you don't know. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, uh, I ejected from Instagram after that. <laughs> um, so I'm not on social media, so you can pretty much watch the TV show, go to psyoc.com, yeah. um, you know, and, and, uh, and find me that way. Good enough. Uh, so psyoc.com, I, I was going to ask you guys to push that as well. So that's, that's where to go. Psyoc.com. Yep. That's it. Very cool. Uh, and thanks again to Raf for, for hooking us all up. Uh, Dave Kalstein, Patrick Fugit, thank you so much for taking some time out to talk. You guys are super inspirational. I love the passion, and uh, it, it's motivating me to want to train some more and, and get uh, more involved with what uh, lies ahead of me for the uh, scrimmage journey that I'm going to go on. So thank you so much for taking some time out to chat. What a great time. Yeah, thank you for having us, and, and the best of luck on your journey. Sincere thanks to Dave Kalstein and Patrick Fugit for spending some time chatting about Treadstone and Sayakali. Treadstone comes out on USA Network this October 15th, so watch for that. 
As Prasaya Kali, Dave and Patrick shared so much great information, and their passion for the art was so real and so inspiring that since we recorded this episode, I sought out a Sayak affiliated school in my area, and with Dave, Patrick, and Raphael Cannon's guidance, I may just give this a try and set off on another journey altogether. Speaking of Raph, big thanks to him as well for putting me in touch with these guys and for being such a big supporter of the show. Follow all these guys on their social media, and those links will all be in the show notes. If you're at all interested in taking a look at Sayok Kali for training, head over to Sayok.com, that's S-A-Y-O-C.com, and join me. Other than that, give me a follow on all my socials as well. If you're on Twitter, check out my Castaways podcast pals at the hashtag Castaways, or feel free to drop me a line at KungFuDriving at gmail.com. Until next time, Poison Clan. Peace. Poison Clan rocks the world. Shouting monks on their hands, running down the thousand stairs. The fate of Lee Khan now's in King Yu's hands. With the fearless idea roaming over the land. Yeah, the little bitch soldier is old and wiser. He wants a world of peace because he doesn't want to fight. Yo, got the venom mob laying down the law. Bruce Lee delivered kicks, guaranteed to raise jars. Fight for the cars, then pass here. The blast on the end back kicks will defeat the outlaws. Very good, but boards don't hit back. Yeah, the death jewels here, Derry D is coming back. The Tai Chi master, Jet Li's even faster. Could chat a little drink because he is the drunken master. Once upon a time, a shiner. Rosamund Kwan is real fine, but see, Maggie Chung is finer. Golden Swallow has arrived. Chan Chi movies will the hero will survive. We've got the brave archer make his way to the top of the mountain, gonna fight. May as well pick the spot. Yeah, the sky goes black, cut the vampires back. We've got Lam Ching Ying to kill them all, so stand back. You place the black magic on the soul of the sword, and our sword will travel until his body's on floors. Yeah. Wing Chun Shaolin and Manti style Yeah, defeat the enemy and watch you run for miles Blood will spill now on the mountain tops When we bring back the soul of the legendary pops Welcome to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place up with a dragon claws We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place up with a dragon claw See it's a game of death yo You're facing the big boss It's once upon a time in China counting the TikTok The Shogun Assassin slash and blood just drip drop The head kick, neck drop, balance the bone stop Wanna kill Bill, better get the assassins He's got Irma just in yellow But she is in the dragon but in the tea rooms That's where it'll happen She got the bodies on the floor When the blood it'll splatter against the wall Don't fear at all, to kill them all There's always blood spilled when you head into a war Fearless Unleashed The fist of legend that's the card Jet Li I'm Bolo Young, yo, I'll always be a beast You rumble in the Bronx, yo, I'm rumble in the streets And it's simple, see the facts are these There's only ever gonna be one Bruce Lee Welcome to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place so with a dragon claws We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting